Amen. In your Bibles, if you would turn to Romans chapter 4, you'll find that on page 1119 in the Pew Bible. And we encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open as we work our way through the final section of Romans 4, particularly verses 23 through 25. In the structure, the overall structure of the book of Romans, chapter 4, we know marks the end of the first major section of Paul's letter. And as we look forward to chapter 5, quite familiar, I think, to many of us, we can see that Paul will clearly be taking us down a new road, one that can be called a treasure trove of promises and blessings that flow out of and from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Sinclair Ferguson, in a sermon he preached in, uh, many years ago in chapter 5, uh, verse 1 of Romans, compared it to some very other familiar images. And I really like the way he did this. He asked this question. He said, what do Professor Diggory Kirk's wardrobe from Narnia the looking glass from Alice in Wonderland and Romans 5.1 all have in common. The answer, he said, is that each one opens to a world of unimaginable riches and amazing experiences, a wonderland in which grace seems to become stronger, in which Jesus seems to become greater, and in which the Christian life seems to become more triumphant. Which one, he asked, is the odd one out? Well, it's Romans 5.1. Because the world you enter through that door is the only one of these three which is real. And I thought that was a great way to sort of look forward together. And by looking forward, I mean, as Pastor Fisher said this morning, into the new year when we will begin to take up Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and following. Now, that real world of unimaginable riches is, again, what we'll be looking at in the new year. And it begins what is the second major portion of the book of Romans, where Paul uh, begins to make application of the doctrine of justification by faith. But tonight, we end our study uh, of the first section in chapter 4 by looking at these three last verses, which can be rightly seen, I think, as a bridge to chapter 5 and all the chapters afterwards, and a more direct application, actually, of all that Paul has written so far. And I hope you'll see how direct Paul is in these verses as we once again hear them read. So for context, we'll read 13 through 25. That's the sort of the part of the argument where we are, and I'll ask that you would stand as we read those verses, 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, in, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith then is null and promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, 
not only of the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass, all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we are especially thankful tonight that this word that you have spoken and written long ago, not just for Abraham, but for us, has been preserved and kept and remains forever. It is a truth upon which we have based our whole lives in believing in the one who was indeed delivered over for our trespasses and our sins and raised for our justification. And so we pray that your blessing would rest upon this word preached and listened and heard and that you would bless it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great questions that often comes to mind when reading the Bible, and this could be any portion of the Bible, but especially the places where the author, in this case Paul, is clearly and carefully laying out an argument like we have here in Romans. One of the questions that's often asked is simply this, so what? So what? This is great for Abraham, but what does it have to do with me? Well, I hope that in uh, already reading these verses as we have, you've seen very clearly that this has everything to do with you and with me tonight. In fact, what Paul says here at the end of chapter four can be seen as one of his most direct statements of application of the gospel that we have in all of the Bible. In our study, we've already noted how important the truth Paul is arguing is to every person who has ever lived. Now, that's not hyperbole or overstatement. It is the truth. Because the most important question, as we have said many times in this study, that any person can ask and must ask after understanding all that Paul says about our sin and rebellion against God is this. How can I be made right with God? How do I achieve a right standing before a holy God? Well, here is Paul's answer to that question. Not just for Abraham, of course, but for any and everyone who believes God 
as he did. And so I want to look at this uh, section tonight, verses 23, 24, and 25 in the following way. First, I want us to see what Paul says is our connection or link, if you will, to Abraham. That's what he's talking about here. There's a link that we have to Abraham. Now, that's been obvious, I think, in all of our study though, thus far, but Paul makes it explicit here. It's been his point all along. He turned to Abraham to finally prove his argument that justification or gaining a right standing before God must be and is by faith alone. That was his whole argument throughout our study in chapter 4 especially. He even brought in David to sort of echo Abraham's uh, experience and said that David spoke of the same way in which we are justified, and that is by faith alone, that we know the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, this is what his summary statement in verse 22 means. That is why verse 22 says his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But now he wants to make application of this truth to the believers in Rome. And so he tells them something incredibly important in verse 23. He says, as you see in verse 23, that the words it was counted to him were not written only for his sake or for his sake alone, but also for ours. This is the connecting point with Abraham. And it tells us, I believe, a great deal about how we ought to read and apply the Bible. Now, I thought it was very interesting. And of course, uh, we never talk about what we're preaching on to each other week after week, but there's always overlap. There's always places where the Lord sort of reinforces what each of us are preaching through, through the other. And I thought it was interesting this morning that in the New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you have a very similar phrase. That is, that these words were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. You'll remember that section in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul writes, it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? And the answer, of course, is no. That doesn't mean God isn't concerned about the animals. It just means that's not the reason why this was ultimately written. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written, he says, this commandment was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And, and so as Pastor Fisher taught us this morning, as the Lord taught us through him, this has reference and application as Paul makes to Timothy to those who labor and deserve double honor not just simply the honor that belongs to all elders, but the double honor that belongs to those who literally earn their living through the preaching and teaching of the gospel. We see what Paul's saying there. Those words written so long ago in the law of Moses were written for our day and for our application. We see the same thing, I think, in the very next chapter of 1 Corinthians, and this in an even fuller way, as Paul writing in chapter 10 of that letter, says this concerning those who perished in the wilderness during the days of wandering, a time, I will remind you, that was marked by great unbelief, not faith like Abraham, 
but great unbelief. Listen to how Paul writes about those days and its application to this day. Now, these things took place, he says, as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down, recorded, inscripturated for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, lest anyone who thinks, lest, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then this verse, often quoted out of context, says this, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so that verse, chapter 10, verse 13, famously again quoted, famously out of context, is about the things that were written down for our benefit, that we would not walk in the same way. And the promise is that there is no temptation that is common to man that God has not also provided in his faithfulness a way of escape so that we might walk in obedience to him. So things written down long ago for a people long ago in a context very different than ours, Paul says in all of these places, they were written down actually for your sake, he says, for my sake. The connection is that what God was speaking, of course, to Abraham, what he was saying about Abraham, that by uh, his faith, it was counted to him for righteousness, that the, the counting of that faith for righteousness was not only for Abraham, but for you and for me. It is to our benefit, he says, not just Abraham's benefit. That's the connection we have with Abraham. And it's the explicit connection that Paul now states in this way that he's really been talking about through the whole section. And so that's the first point. Our connection to Abraham is that the words spoken and written down to him were for our benefit, that we might be encouraged to walk in the same faith. Secondly, then, what is that faith? Well, here Paul tells us to he who or to the one who believes in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord. Now, there's a lot I'm going to say tonight, just in passing, that we don't have time to go into. But what I would argue is what Paul is really saying to Abraham or to, uh, to us, to the Roman believers and to us, is that what Abraham was really believing in, ultimately, though he could never fully grasp or understand it because it had not yet been clearly revealed, was that the God in whom he was trusting was the God ultimately who would raise Jesus from the dead. Now, I understand that that's difficult for us to grasp because Abraham didn't know about Jesus explicitly. 
But part of the argument that Paul makes here is that his faith was ultimately, and we'll see this later, ultimately in Jesus, in God who made promises, but those promises as they find their fulfillment in Jesus. And I think we get hints of this, don't we? Earlier, as the last time we were together, we looked at the faith of Abraham. What did it consist of? What kinds of things that he did he believe? Well, his whole story can be characterized by what it says in verse um, 16 or 17, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What Abraham was believing in is a God who is able to do the impossible, to give life to those who are dead, who have no life, and to call into existence the things that aren't there. That is the God in whom he believed. And again, his whole life, remember, he looks at his body. He says, I'm, I'm hoping against hope here because this body isn't capable of doing what is necessary so that God's word would come true. Despite that, he pressed on. He looked at a or Sarah, his wife, well beyond the years of childbearing. And he said the same thing. I know that this God who speaks, who's spoken to me, is the God who can do this. He can raise people from the dead. That's what Abraham actually believed. And so his faith, as it's recorded in Hebrews 11, gives testimony to this, doesn't it? You remember the great test that Abraham was put through by God for the testing of his faith that it would be proven to be genuine. It says this in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now we'll stop there. What, what does that mean? Abraham knew that this was the way in which God said it would happen. And yet he's calling him to sacrifice him. So what did he do in faith? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He offered Isaac with the idea in his mind and the faith, believing that God was able to raise him from the dead. The resurrection of the dead is a central belief of the Christian faith. You read through Romans or 1 Corinthians, I should say, 15. The, the whole chapter deals with the resurrection. And he makes that argument. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then our faith is futile. Everything we live for and do is in vain because it means that Jesus was not raised from the dead. Everything here focuses on Christ and new life in Christ. And so when we think about what God does, as Abraham believed that he was able to give life to the dead, we think about all that he does in Christ, that he raises those who are dead in trespasses and sins to new life in Jesus Christ. There is no true faith apart from a belief of faith in the resurrection from the dead. 
that is part and parcel of the whole of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so like Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him, what he believed about God, as we noted already, is what we must believe as well as we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God. And thirdly, you have this wonderful uh, picture in verse 25, as Paul continues to sort of press this point, who, speaking of Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and who was raised for our justification. Here Paul focuses our thoughts upon the heart and the essence of the gospel of that which he is not ashamed as it is rooted and grounded in Christ. The whole of the gospel finds its focus, as he says in the very beginning of Romans, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which was spoken of by the prophets of old. And now Paul is making explicit in his teaching and in his writing what God himself is now manifesting in the fullness of time of the righteousness that comes from God. And it's all centered upon this reality, Paul says, that there is one first who was delivered up for our trespasses, one who was delivered up for our trespasses. Now, there are many ways to interpret and understand that. You can understand it merely on a human level, right? Uh, clearly, he was given over to the Jewish leaders who gave him over to Herod, who gave him over, if you will, or delivered him up to Pilate. All of that is true, that as we see and understand the work that God was doing in Christ, men and wicked men at that uh, took Jesus, handed him over, delivered him up unto death. But, but that's not really what Paul is talking about here, is it? Because he adds this phrase, very important, delivered up and over for our trespasses. And so there's something greater and behind the scenes, a divine plan that is in view here. It's what Peter would say as we hear him on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 as he speaks to those wicked men and as he blends together the reality of what God has done and what men have done. Men of Israel, he says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, for Peter, it wasn't what happened in the realm of men, the wicked men who took him and crucified him. For Peter, for Paul, for the writers of Scripture from beginning to end, it was always about this eternal divine plan to save a people from their sins, to deliver them out of bondage, and so clearly, in, it's very clear that Paul, in using this phrase, delivered up for our trespasses, has echoing in his mind the language you heard read earlier from Isaiah 53. There's no doubt, 
because Isaiah 53 makes it clear. Jesus, the son, was delivered over by God, the one who is the, the great servant of Jehovah in Isaiah, in those servant songs, is spoken of as the one upon whom the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. And yet, he says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. As Paul thinks about the gospel, it's centered upon Christ and upon what Christ came to do in obedience to the Father, to take upon himself the sins of his people, to be crushed under the weight of those sins and the wrath that those sins deserved. That's what Paul says is at the heart of this gospel that he is not ashamed about in these verses. And this is what you and I are called to believe regarding Jesus, our Lord. But it was not only that he was delivered up for our trespasses or transgressions or sins. He was also, Paul writes, raised for our justification. Now, again, commentators discuss this at great lengths and try to understand what it is that Paul is saying here. What does it mean that Christ himself was raised for our justification? Many commentators, I think, rightly say that what we hear is that what we have here is actually the justification of or the vindication of Christ himself, that Jesus himself through the resurrection was vindicated before the Father that everything that he had ever taught, everything that he ever done was proven without, without doubt to be true because of the resurrection, that his whole work was vindicated. All that he spoke, all that he did was true. And that is certainly true, I think. But Paul, being the apostle of the great doctrine of our union with Christ, would also see in this, and the emphasis here I think is clear, that because of our union with Christ in his vindication, we are also vindicated as well in the sense, in this sense that God declared through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that his sacrifice and offering was completely received and that God himself was satisfied with it all. The work that Jesus did in his perfect, sinless, and holy life. The work that he did in his passive obedience, going to the cross and suffering as he did. Though he would pray, let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, he was obedient, as Paul says, even unto death, even the death on the cross. And so the resurrection was a vindication of us in union with Jesus Christ that God now is able and has, in fact, justified us, counted us as righteous, as he did Abraham. Because of our union with Jesus, we are justified in him. This is really an encouragement to us that As it was true of Abraham, so it is true of all who believe in this Jesus, that we truly are justified as Jesus was raised from the grave. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way very clearly in one sentence. The resurrection is the proclamation of the fact that God is fully and completely satisfied with the work that Jesus did on the cross 
so that in turn he can now justify the ungodly. Because Jesus handed over and delivered over for our trespasses, has paid the price and the penalty, taken upon himself the wrath. And because of his resurrection, God being fully satisfied, he is able to grant to us a righteousness that is not our own, but that comes from Jesus. And so we see Paul's point, his application, his initial application at least, his direct application to the readers of this letter in Rome and to all who after them would read these very same words. Three things then as we close our time and prepare to come to the Lord's table. Three things to consider out of these simple verses that are before us. And it's really rooted the first point in these words, but for our sake also. This is the key, I think, in this passage. It is written for our sake also. As he writes to those in Rome, he is telling them that what God said to Abraham is what he will say to everyone who, like Abraham, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. The gospel that God is one who raises from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel which declares that this Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. That is, through promises, what Abraham was believing. And he says, if we believe the same thing, we will also be justified. He will count it to us as righteousness. The question Paul's asking, of course, in, not, in, in more words than are necessary, is simply this. Have you believed the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? Luther called this verse, or these verses, 23 through 25, the whole of Christianity comprehended in these few verses. The whole of Christianity is comprehended here. What it means to be a Christian is found in these verses. That like Abraham, if we believe the gospel, we will be justified as he was. Paul will later in Romans, in that wonderful chapter, chapter 10, speak about these ideas. Remember chapter 10, his argument is much further developed, but in chapter 10, he sort of returns to these early arguments of Jew and Gentile, of righteousness by faith or by works of the law. And in chapter 10, in these verses, especially verse six and following, he says this, but the righteousness that is based on faith, which is what we're talking about, says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does righteousness based on faith say? The word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, made right with God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The words, Paul says, it was counted to him, were not written just for Abraham. They were written for you and for me, if you will but believe what God has spoken. And that's the call, isn't it? Before we speak about any other application, that has to be the call. The call is, have you believed the gospel? Have you, like Abraham, believed God in what he has spoken? Because these words were written for you as much as they were for him. But secondly, and really building on that, it does remind us how we are to read and study and to mark God's word. I was especially impressed by this idea this week as I was studying that what Paul is saying here and in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 10 and other places as well, when he says these words that these things were written not just for them back then, strangers to us, but to us living in the 21st century. This passage speaks far more than we could see regarding justification. That is Paul's, of course, main point. It speaks about how we view and approach the entire Bible, how we read it, how we mark it, how we study it. When we're going through passages in the Old Testament, like we are in Ezekiel, and we're looking at Ezekiel 16 as we spent three weeks going through what God wrote concerning the rebellious hearts and the, uh, the adulterous hearts of his people of old. You know, those words were not written just for them. They were written for us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, as a warning that we would not walk in those ways, but rather in obedience to him. And so I love what a, we've looked at already in several places before our confession says about faith. We've read it responsively several times. But listen to what it says about faith, because this, this statement about faith really fleshes out what Paul's saying here, that these things were written not just for them, but for us. By this faith, that is in Jesus, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself is speaking in it and acts differently upon that which each particular passage contains, yielding obedience to the commands, not just the commands of the New Testament, but anywhere you find a command, trembling at the threatenings, not just the threatenings of revelation, but the threatenings everywhere you find them embracing the promises of God for this life everywhere you find it and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. You see, that passage is very helpful in tell telling us and teaching us how we are to read, to study, and to mark God's word. But then thirdly and finally, and I suppose I never tire, you may, but I hope not. Uh, this is really all about Jesus, isn't it? 
It really is all about Jesus for Paul. There have been many times when I've come to the end of a sermon where I just want to say this again and again. It's all about Jesus because it really is true. It really is always and only about him, his person and his work. And it has always been and always will be only about Jesus. You see, there are many people today, uh, maybe there are less today than there were in times past, but there are those today who will try to argue that those who lived before the time of Christ when he came were saved in some other and different way than we who live at the coming of Jesus or after the coming of Jesus. This is patently false. This is patently false. All that we have studied tonight shows us that what Abraham was looking for and what he was believing was the very same gospel that you and I believe if you sit here tonight as a Christian. Now, because of the nature of God's revelation, it's progressive in nature, which simply means that what you read in Genesis is not what you understand when you get to the New Testament. It just wasn't revealed. God, over time, progressively revealed the fullness of his work in saving sinners, ultimately culminating in the person and work of Jesus. He did that progressively. But listen, every promise he made was connected to Jesus, pointed to Jesus, so that we can say, as Abraham is spoken of here, that what Abraham was believing ultimately was Jesus and what God would do ultimately in him. Even though he couldn't flesh it out, speak of it. Paul says it, doesn't he, when he says it speaks of seed, singular, seed, Jesus, not seed, many, but seed, one. In some way, Abraham was looking and seeing that what God was saying to him ultimately is connected to Jesus. And he was believing in Jesus as much as we do today. But Jesus that was revealed to him through promises that find their fulfillment and yes and amen in him. We've noted this passage before in John 8. It's probably the central place where we see this to be true, really apart from Hebrews where we see it as well. But you remember that context in John 8. He's arguing with the Pharisees. They're complaining that, that he's no greater than Abraham, but he seems to be making himself greater than Abraham. And so towards the very end of that argument, that debate that's happening as Jesus is just so clearly uncovering their ignorance and their unbelief. It says this, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. How did he see it? He saw it by faith, the faith which God counted to him as righteousness. The faith, as we saw last week, that looks to the God who is, as he's revealed himself, that takes God at his word, 
that remains faithful and undeterred in the face of everything contrary to what he believes and a faith of which he is fully convinced and therefore acts. That faith, that gracious gift of God, Paul says was accounted to him as righteousness. And so it will be for all here tonight and anywhere who believe, who believe in the one who was delivered up for their trespasses and who was raised for their justification. And it is to that one that we prepare now to come as we gather before him at his table. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that the gospel that we have come to believe, even as Abraham believed it, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, that that gospel is now set before us in this sacrament of the Lord's table. We thank you that what we have heard in the preaching and hearing of your word is now displayed and pictured for us in the sacrament. And we pray that you would so give us and grant us and increase our faith that we might see Jesus in this meal, the one delivered up for our trespasses, the one who is raised for our justification and now is seated at your right hand, and who is the one to whom we come now by the Spirit, seated before him, he feeding us and nourishing us, Grant us, Father, all that is ours through him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.